Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, back for 2023, fully refreshed after a Christmas break and ready to take an invigorating New Year dive into some of the big political stories affecting the North. I'm Rob Parsons, Northern Agenda editor for Reach, responsible for big titles like the Manchester Evening News and Newcastle Chronicle, but I also write a daily newsletter about politics for the North of England. If you want to subscribe but you haven't done so, it's very easy. Just visit www.thenorthernagenda.co.uk. This week, we're looking at the bleak forecast facing the Northern town hall leaders responsible for the services that many of us rely on. 12 years of austerity cuts have knocked the stuffing out of many of our local councils, but with inflation biting, things could be about to get worse. I've been talking to Barnsley Council's Sir Stephen Houghton, one of the longest serving local authority leaders in the country, about the unfair funding system that means people in the North don't get the same public services as their southern counterparts. But in Leeds, where I live, it's set to be a massive year for anyone interested in the arts and creativity as the city celebrates Leeds 2023, a year of culture modelled on the European capital of culture idea. The people behind it say in the next 12 months, Leeds will burst into life fueled by creativity and the aim of opening more opportunities for more people. And it all gets underway with an opening ceremony called The Awakening at Headingley Stadium, kicking off a huge programme of events. So let's find out more about it with Abigail Scott-Paul, Director of External Relations and Strategic Partnerships at Leeds 2023. Abigail, welcome. Hi, Rob. Nice to be here. Nice to have you on. So. The background for this, for people not aware, is that Leeds, correct me if I'm wrong, decided to set up its own year celebrating culture in the city. In some respects, because of Brexit and the fact that leaving the European Union meant the city couldn't bid to be the European capital of culture, which was what it originally wanted to do a few years ago. Can you just take us from that point in 2017 to how we got to where we are today, just a few days from the whole big thing kicking off? Sure. So um, obviously a lot of momentum had been built up over those years um, leading up to the decision to decide to bid to be European Capital of Culture. And then I think it was almost on the eve of the final um, uh, jury selection process that the team found out that they were no longer eligible to bid. So uh, a lot of disappointment, but um, kind of all credit to the City Council. They kind of came back and, uh, you know, kind of consulted with um, the businesses that had already supported the bid, but also communities and, and the culture sector. And, you know, kind of it was a real act of bravery and confidence in the city that they decided, well, let's do a year of culture anyway. And um, I think that was a a great um, kind of moment for the city, really recognising and understanding the role of culture in placemaking and, you know, looking at what culture had done in other cities like Liverpool, who had been crowned European Capital of Culture in 20, uh, 2008. And I know that the Liverpudlians uh, describe culture as rocket fuel for regeneration. So, you know, kind of that was a big leap of faith and uh, based on sort of what, what other cities had done. And, you know, kind of the city decided to set up Leeds Culture Trust as an independent vehicle to, to deliver Leeds 2023 with an independent board of trustees. That was set up in 2019 and then recruited uh, the creative director and CEO, Kali Thiare, who has a long history um, of uh, working in Leeds and in Bradford. So really understood the wider West Yorkshire region. And uh, we basically, um, I started March 20. 
2020, so th- almost three years ago, and we um, kind of set up this organisation and, and really had the opportunity to think, well, what is a year of culture? But of course, just as we were setting up, the pandemic hit and, um, you know, kind of it was really, uh, really difficult to uh, understand how do, how do we navigate this and how do we you know kind of um, think about what what a year of culture can do now particularly in a sector where <laughs> almost hard as hit by some of the restrictions you know the arts and culture sector were really really impacted badly by um, COVID but it allowed us a bit of time and opportunity to really rethink that well what what do we do now and how can we play that real role in terms of the social and economic recovery of uh, the city so um kind of we the 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 opportunity of not being you know kind of while hopes were uh, dashed at not being a european capital of culture we were also liberated from a lot of the rules which means that we could really rethink um what goes into the program and for us and with our board of trustees we decided well we wanted to celebrate everything that makes up the rich diverse cultural life of leeds so that does include sport food everyday creativity as well as of course um the arts and culture scene so, you know, kind of that has been an opportunity that we've really um, run with and uh, we're really brilliant that we've got a really rich programme that hopefully there'll be something for everyone. Absolutely. And I was looking on the website earlier and there's a huge amount going on. I mean, just take us through some of the highlights. What are you most looking forward to in the next 12 months? Well, as I sit here, I'm obviously super excited about our opening event, The Awakening, which is taking place at Headingley Stadium on Saturday. Uh, that is going to be an amazing celebration of all Leeds's um, past, present and future, featuring some incredible talent from the city, from, you know, big star names like Corin Bailey Ray, right through to uh, Leeds's youngest rock band, the Solar Jets. So a real celebration of kind of um, the richness of uh, creativity in this uh, city and and of course the great thing about uh, this show which is being directed by Alan Lane um, from Slunglo and Kalithiare, our creative director, is that um, in you know tickets were free which is brilliant but in order to get a ticket people had to submit a piece of art because. They wanted to acknowledge that uh, everybody has a creative impulse, but not always able to express it or have the chance to show it off. So we really want this to be a celebration of everybody's creativity in the city. And that is going to go off with a bang at Hedingley Stadium. It's going to be um, super. I was down there last last night seeing the stage being made and uh, to fill, you know, kind of a rugby stadium with 10th, 10,000 people celebrating Lisa's culture is going to be something really, really special. But then we've got events all throughout the year. And um, another highlight I'm looking forward to is My Leeds 2023. And that is a celebration of every ward in the city where communities in those wards will choose how they want to celebrate Leeds 2023. Um, And this is sort of in recognition that we, you know, we really understand that, um, across all the city um, communities are doing uh, amazing things and have their own um, kind of galas or celebrations in their own communities and we really want to kind of amplify what communities are doing and work alongside those communities to celebrate Leeds 2023 in their own way so we don't know what that will look like but I'm sure it'll be something spectacular 
And then uh, in the autumn, uh, we've got uh, the Day of the Dead comes to uh, Leeds. So uh, if, for those of your listeners who are familiar with uh, Mexico's Day of the Dead, uh, we're working with Leeds-based artist Ellie Harrison um, to put on a celebration uh, called All That Lives. And it's a kind of culmination of a lot of her work looking at exploring at uh, kind of our attitudes to death and celebrate how, how we might, you know, in term, you know, kind of celebrate people's whose lives have passed. And uh, she's been working with uh, the Zion Collective in Mexico to um, kind of really um, showcase um, the amazing work that happens over there in terms of um, kind of the uh, puppetry and the food and drink that goes on in those Day of the Dead celebrations. We're bringing that to Leeds, outside Leeds Playhouse Gardens in a nine-day celebration. So that's going to be something really colourful and exciting to look forward to. Fantastic. Well, I love I love Mexico and Mex- Mexican culture. I'll be uh, I'll be keenly keenly watching Brilliant. that one. There's quite a lot of um, I, I was looking at, uh, elsewhere on the website, and there's quite a lot of stuff that sort of will be either free or you pay what 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 you want sort of ethos. E- e- I'm I'm guessing that's quite important because you want to sort of make the the year of culture as accessible to people as you possibly can. Yeah, I mean, right from the start, we were really keen that we know there are barriers in terms of accessing and participating in culture for people, whether that is cost barriers. And uh, we know, uh, for example, transport, you know, the cost of transport getting into the city centre, but also um, people's age or people's if, you know health conditions or people's experience, whatever that might be. So we really try to put um, accessibility and inclusivity at the heart of the programme. And for us, uh, we want to make as much as possible the events free or as low cost as possible. And that's why it's it's been fantastic to get such support from the private sector and businesses and also our other funders, Trust and Foundations, who can allow us to do that. So um, that is something that collectively we can do together to try and break down those barriers to access and participation. Just sort of thinking about, you know, Leeds's cultural offering and like one of the one of the phrases that I saw sort of sticking out on the website quite a lot is sort of the, the quiet quiet confidence that Leeds has in its culture and I think I'd, I don't know if it's unfair to say that if you think of other parts of the north you know Manchester, Liverpool, Sheffield etc they have quite distinct sort of cultural offerings when you think about Manchester or Liverpool very specific cultural things come to mind and perhaps for people outside Leeds it doesn't have that in quite the same way. I mean, is that something that you're trying to address or is that actually a strength of Leeds' cultural offering that it's more sort of varied and not perhaps reliant on just one or two, one or two things? Yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say that, you know, over the last three years, I've talked to lots of people and they, they do say that Leeds has sort of hidden its light under a bushel. And um, I think Leeds 2023 is all about having the opportunity across a whole year to really shout about the amazing cultural uh, activity and infrastructure that we've got in the city. I mean, I think Leeds is known for its music scene. um, And we know that um, uh, outside of London, it's got an incredible dance history as well. But outside the city, not many people might know that. So this is our year to really shout about the cultural giant that is Leeds. And, you know, kind of Leeds is, you know, it's the UK's third largest city. And, you know, there's, I think the latest census showed that there's over 800,000 people, you know, 170 different languages. So the diversity of culture is really, really rich across a very uh, kind of 
differing geographic landscape as well. So um, this is an opportunity to really celebrate all of that. Um, We do want to put Leeds on the map for culture, without a doubt, nationally and internationally. And we've got brilliant partners working with the British Council, uh, working with artists right across the world. So um, this is our opportunity to really um, shout about the city uh, and shout about something that probably loiners know all about, but maybe people outside the city don't know as much. But also, um, we, we also want to encourage neighbourhoods to get to know their neighbours as well. And that's why the community projects are really so important, um, you know, kind of in the different communities, whether they're, you know, kind of, uh, you know, geographically communities or communities of skateboarders, for example, that you might not know um, are really vibrant uh, uh, part of the city as well. So that's what we're all about, really. So for people, obviously, I'm guessing you want people to come to Leeds from other parts of the country, from across the north, across the country at large. For people listening to this outside Leeds, who might be considering running the gauntlet of trying to get a train uh, from their part of the north to uh, to, to Leeds or maybe driving across what, what can you just sell to them sort of uh, succinctly why, why they should be coming what, what's in it for people outside Leeds well I think you know you'd be able to fill 48 hours of uh, your weekend with an incredible and diverse range of culture you could go and see performances in some of our you know kind of world-class venues like uh, Leeds Playhouse but you could also equally sample some amazing food in Kirkgate Market or even some you know kind of if, if you prefer have a meal in a Michelin starred restaurant and then you could go and see some incredible live music as well as perform performances uh, by some uh, you know kids uh, in some of the uh, brilliant um, venues we've got so uh, as well as taking a tour of all the uh, street art um, throughout the city centre that's been popping up recently um, so there really is something for everyone um, and you know kind of we we you know and and you might even be able to take in a rugby league match as well if sport's your thing so there is uh it's a fantastic city and we can't wait to share it with the rest of the world fantastic stuff abigail scott paul from leeds 2023 thank you thank you Now, looking around the various town halls in the north, there are some pretty worrying numbers being bandied about in terms of the state of their finances and how much they're going to have to cut to break even in the next few months. In Middlesbrough, for example, there's a budget gap of £20 million. Politicians are looking at turning off some streetlights at night, cutting library opening hours and increasing the cost of school dinners. On the other side of our region, Liverpool City Council has a whopping £73 million shortfall for the next financial year, with warnings of service cuts and job losses on the horizon. Things have been tough for the last decade or so for those in charge of our local councils, a period in which we've seen dramatic government austerity cuts combined with a huge rise in demand for things like adult social care, and now, of course, the cost of living crisis. Just before Christmas, the government unveiled a £60 million local government funding package to pay for the local services we all count on, like bin collections, repairing potholes and looking after our most vulnerable. Levelling up Secretary Michael Gove said it represented a 3% increase in core spending power before any local decisions about council tax are taken. But... Local leaders say that councils face an impossible choice now between increasing council tax and the burden on hard-pressed families during a cost-of-living crisis and potentially having to cut back 
on vital frontline services. So let's find out exactly what the issues facing our town hall leaders are as they try to balance the books by talking to Sir Stephen Houghton, the Labour leader of Barnsley Council, who also chairs the Special Interest Group of Municipal Authorities, SIGOMA, a campaigning network of local councils. Sir Stephen, welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast. Great to meet you, Rob. Yeah, thank you very much. No worries at all. So thank you for coming on. So as as I alluded to earlier, councils like yours in Barnsley have had hard decisions to make about how to keep services going for at least a decade now, if not longer. To put where we are now into, into that context, in terms of how bad things have been during that period, what's the current state of local government finance, both for your authority and sort of the wider the wider picture? I mean, if we, if we look at what's happened over the last 10, 12 years, uh, something like £14.5 billion has been cut from local government services. Now, that's a huge number, and we've lost around a million people out of the workforce. So councils, um, as we speak today, are very much smaller than they were a decade ago. Um, We know the reasons behind a lot of that. Uh, The country was in a very difficult financial situation, and to be honest, local government were asked to bear the brunt of those savings and those cutbacks. And we've seen councils over the years had to make some very, very difficult decisions. Obviously, now as we go into a second period of austerity, um, councils are not in a position where there's fat to cut off or huge efficiencies can be made. I'm afraid lots of councils are simply going to have to look at services and say, what are we going to do less of? To make it a bit more specific, I guess, in Barnsley, what changes or what impacts will people in Barnsley have noticed over that period, things that they things that they used to be able to rely on the local council to do back in 2010, say for example, that that they can't anymore, or that maybe things that in the future they might not they might not be able to expect from your your authority. Yeah, um, I mean we've been through a horrendous period. We've lost about 40% of our budget and lost about half our workforce. So we used to have a workforce of around. Um, 5,000 non-teaching staff, we're down to about 2,500. And as I say, we've we've lost about 120 million out of our budget. Yet public expectations haven't really changed very much of councils. If In some ways, demand has got even bigger. So that, that's made a difference. We've lost libraries. We don't cut the grass as often. We don't street, sweep the streets as often. Um, we no longer provide youth clubs for young people. They've, they've, they've disappeared. Um, in pre, preschool activities where we had those early years, those early learning centres, uh, they've been reduced significantly. Um, so a whole range of activities really right across the council. Um, we're a very different organisation from what we used to be. And is that trend going to continue given the financial challenges you're facing with the cost of living crisis and the, the weight, as I was alluding to earlier, that the government is putting on? council tax increases to sort of meet the budget budget shortfalls that 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 trend of the council getting smaller and smaller is that is that going to continue i think it is um certainly for us over the next two to three years we're looking about 15 to 20 million we're going to have to find uh, to meet our budget gap and that isn't as bad as some of the numbers you've already mentioned um in some places um and what we've had to do as as other councils have um, is put up the council tax because the government have slowly but surely moved the tax burden on adult social care from national taxation onto local taxpayers. So again, council tax will go up 
more than we would like because we've got to make sure our older population have got the services that they need. And yeah, it's going to continue for the next two, three, four years at least, I think. Now, obviously, towns like Barnsley, which have historically been Labour strongholds, but in recent years have come closer than ever before to voting Conservative. Obviously, neither of the two Barnsley constituencies went Conservative, but it was closer in 2019 than it's ever previously been. They're they're right at the heart of what Boris Johnson, uh, when he was around, used to describe as the levelling up agenda. I'm I'm not totally sure where that agenda is at the moment. But how, in in your view, how far do the, the cuts to council budgets that we've been describing, how far do they damage the aims of levelling up to increase prosperity and opportunity outside London? I mean, the the first thing we need to say is public services are about levelling up. They are about giving people support um, and service uh, provision that they couldn't afford to pay for themselves. So we have teachers in schools, we have doctors and nurses in hospitals, we have police officers keeping us safe, we have social workers looking after children, we sweep the streets, we mend the roads. All these are levelling up activities. Um, Not everyone can afford to live in a nice, prosperous, leafy suburb. People have to live uh, where their economic circumstances dictate. So when we talk about levelling up and redistribution, the fundamental way we do that in the UK is through public services. So if we're cutting public services, we're levelling down is what we're doing because the ones who need help most are going to get less help. So the quality of their life is going to deteriorate. So when we talk about levelling up, it begins with good, high-quality public services to the people that need them. Now, beyond that, clearly we then start to talk about economic growth and economic infrastructure so people become less reliant on public services, which is where we all want to be. Um, And we talk about good education and skills so people can access all those jobs we hope to create Again, that's part of the levelling up scenario. Um, But it begins with public services. So if we are reducing public services and cutting them dramatically, then the people who need levelling up most are getting exactly the opposite. Now, I suppose if there was a government minister here, he or she would point to things like the £4.8 billion levelling up fund, which I'm I'm, I'm assuming the Barnsley bid for and perhaps is waiting to hear, hear back from in the latest latest round of bidding, the various other funds that you can bid for. There's a whole alphabet soup, isn't there, of different place-based funds that places like Barnsley can try and get some cash from. I mean, do they in any way compensate for what you've described? If you get £20 million for the regeneration project, how far does that go to making up for you know, a decade of of cuts to public services in the way that you've described? Well, I mean, if you look at just take Barnes's case, if we're losing around 120 million a year for 10 years, that's 1.2 billion. Um, A 20 million pound levelling up fund, albeit welcome, and we do welcome those investments into our communities, simply doesn't scratch the surface of what's already been lost. So if you look at it in number terms, there's, there's simply no comparison. Um, what we do need to see on levelling up and levelling up funding is, first of all, that targeted to the places who need it most. What we saw under Boris Johnson was that being spread right across the country. And, you know, I'm sure everyone welcomes uh, additional uh, investment into their places, but I'm sure London and the South East doesn't need levelling up funding like Yorkshire and the Humber, the North West, the North East, 
the economies and, and the levels of prosperity are very different. So we need those levelling up funds to be much more targeted to the places um, that need them most. And we also have to recognise, because in post-industrial towns like Barnsley, we've been levelling up for 20 years um, since we lost all the jobs in our staple industries. Um, levelling up is not a quick fix. It's at least a 20-year strategy where we have decent quality public services to underpin those communities over that time. But then we start to grow the economy, give people skills, have the right transport infrastructure so that in 20 years' time, our children and our grandchildren are not reliant as they are now on public services, have better jobs, better incomes. The economy is growing substantially. And the country is in a much better place because it's, it's not good for UK PLC to have the north of England underperforming, which economically it still does. Um, so it's good for the taxpayer to get us out of this. It's good for our communities to get us out of this. Um, but we have to recognise it's going to take more than a one-off 10, 15, 20 million pound investment to do it. And we have to recognise, you know, that it's going to take decades if we're going to shift that balance between the north and the southeast. And that's that's the challenge we've got to set our stall to. And I've said to, to both ministers and, and certainly to Labour uh, leading figures, we need cross-party agreement on what a levelling up agenda looks like, how long we expect it to take, and what kind of investment it's going to need. Because over that 20 years, we're going to see changes of government either changes of personality as we've seen over the last 10 years or literally changes from Labour to Conservative uh, as it might be during that period. If the ministers or governments come in and chop and change, levelling up won't happen. We need that constant flow of investments, constant policy direction for a long period of time. So both parties need to get behind a single agenda and then be prepared to deliver it, as I say, uh, for a long period so we can get there. Nothing hurts us more than chop and change. And one of the other things that I hear a lot about, you know, the way councils are funded, talking about public services, is that because, particularly with adult social care, it's largely paid for by council tax, areas in the southeast or down south with higher house prices generally find it easier to fund themselves in the way that Barnsley uh, and other you know, areas in the northeast, for example, don't because the house prices aren't aren't so high. They can't generate as much in council tax. In your view, how does the local government finance system need to be reformed to make it fairer? Address that sort of inequality in the in the way that that those vital funding streams get to you. I mean, I, th- I think there's now general agreement in local government that the current finance system is broken and that it's not fit for purpose and it doesn't deliver both enough money into local services across the country and certainly doesn't target money to where it's most needed. So change is is very much needed. And councils get their money from effectively three principal sources. One is the council tax, which residents pay. One is uh, business rates, where local businesses contribute uh, to council funding. Um, and the um, third area is government grant uh, to top us up as, as we go through. If you're a council that's heavily reliant on grant, as Barnsley is, for example, and that grant gets cut, then we're into serious difficulties in balancing books and we're forced to cut services. On the other hand, 
If you're a council that can raise substantial amounts of money through council tax because you've got a high property tax base and you've got a successful economy and a high business rate base and that's growing and you can keep much of that growth, you're in a very different position uh, because you can fund a lot of those local services through those two routes, um, whereas places like Barnsley struggle to do that. So what's happened over the last 10 years under this system is Basically, wealthy areas have got wealthier and poor areas have got poorer. And the quality of public services differs enormously across the country. That's a postcode lottery and the current finance system needs changing to stop that. Our view is that both business rates uh, and government grant should be rolled up into one. That that should be distributed on a needs basis with proper analysis done by an independent body to keep the politics out of it. Uh, so proper needs can be assessed and then formula to distribute that um, appropriately, taking into account, of course, council tax and how much areas differ in terms of what they can raise. What people often say to me when I put that forward is, yes, but that's not encouraging councils to grow their economies. If we had some incentive, then um, we get a lot more economic growth and therefore potentially the tax paying both locally and nationally would see income start to rise. And I do think there is a point in that, but not as it is under the current system where that is squeezing out vital services from many of the poorest communities. Um, I think that needs to be an additional uh, funding stream from central taxation, which says to councils, if you're going to grow your economy, we'll give you some incentive, but we're going to make sure that core services across the country hit minimum standards. And we don't have that at the moment. It's very, very different if you're in Woking or Wakefield or Liverpool or, you know, London. Um, we're looking at very different scenarios in types of volume and quality of services that people can get. So we need to shift that. Um, and if we can do that, and we're certainly arguing to both this government and a potential change in, in a couple of years' time, um, we need to change how the system works. The other bit is linking... Um, business rates to local services means flexibility on business rates for businesses who are struggling, and they really are struggling post-COVID, um, is very limited because we need that money to provide local services. If somehow that could be once removed or taken out altogether, that would give government the opportunity to deal with the problems the business community is having with business rates, while at the same time not damaging local services. So it is a fundamental shift that we require to get some fairness back into the system. If we carry on as we are now, the gap between rich and poor is just going to get wider and wider. At the moment, we estimate some £3 billion is going to prosperous areas which would have come to poorer areas, particularly in the north, um, but is being retained through the business rate mechanism elsewhere. The government said it would reset and change that after 10 years, it hasn't done it. Um, at the very least, it could do that before it changes the system um, wholeheartedly. Now, talking about councils more generally, we sometimes hear about the uh, dreaded Section 114 notice, which has sort of been described as where the council effectively declares itself bankrupt because it doesn't have the cash to provide services any anymore. I know, I know there was a period in which there was talk about certain authorities having to resort to that. I mean, are there any local councils in Yorkshire or the North that are close 
to it being that bad in your in, in your view? Um, I don't think so at this moment in time, but obviously councils are still working through their budgets for next year, as are we. Um, so it's maybe a bit too early to tell. I think what we have to say is technically councils don't go bankrupt. What happens is if if councils find themselves in a position where they cannot balance their books and meet their statutory responsibilities, they'll issue a section 114 notice to tell the public that's where they are. The challenge then for the council is to reduce expenditure, i.e. cut services, to balance those books. And, it, and we have a legal duty as local authorities to balance the books every year. Um, it's interesting central government doesn't have that duty, as we've seen over the last six months. Um, so they are not as responsible as we are. Um, we cannot borrow to cover off that revenue problem as central government does, and nor should we. Um, what happens if even in those circumstances, councils are struggling, they can then apply to the government for what's known as a capital direction, which basically means then the council can borrow some money to cover off the gap in the current year's budget. But of course, that money then has to be paid back in future years. So there are ways and means of making sure councils don't fall over. And we've seen that. Are we seeing it in Thurrock? We've seen it in Slough. We've seen it in the Wirral. We've seen it in other places where councils have got into real difficulty. There are ways and means of getting out of it. Um, but no one wants to see a council in that position. And I would always say to, to members, as difficult as it is to cut services and reduce expenditure, we have a legal responsibility. And the public will always expect us to fulfil that, even though they may not always like the choices we have to make. And the final question for Stephen, what role does devolution play in this we hear quite a lot about devolution as it's been a deal signed in uh, in the northeast uh, and not long before that in north yorkshire to hand devolved powers and funding over to a uh, elected mayor obviously in south yorkshire where you are the elected labor mayor oliver coppard has some powers and money to boost the area's economy although i'm sure he'd like more is there more that we could be doing to give mayors or other leaders, for example, revenue raising powers to put a bit more control back in their hands? Could devolution be doing more of the legwork to, to sort of help with address some of the issues that you've been, you've been talking about? Well, I mean, each one of those devolution deals comes with some investment money. In South Yorkshire, it's around 30 million a year, uh, but that's across four councils. So bear that in mind against that 1.2 billion in Barnsley that we've lost times that by four or five times for the whole of South Yorkshire. So it isn't going to solve the problems we had over the last 10 years. But the investment is very welcome. And we're trying to use that uh, that money to invest in the local economy and grow jobs and businesses so that we are in a much better place. Um, the powers we have are very limited uh, around the adult education budget in particular and some small transport powers. But even on the investment we've got, we've still got to get government approval. Uh, so it's it's not the devolution that it's often made out to be, albeit is a step in the right direction. I think if we really want to make devolution work on the scale people would like, it is about scale. It's about us in the north, beat, and I'm particularly keen on a Yorkshire approach to devolution, but, but we need that across the whole of the north of England to give the North powers, first of all, to do things that they currently can't, and that's taking powers away from Westminster, 
more on skills, more powers on transport and so on. Um, but also you come to the point about revenue raising powers. Um, if we were to try and raise revenue in South Yorkshire, we'd need a big hiking council tax to give Oliver some money to spend that's going to make a real difference. If, however, you do that revenue raising at scale across Yorkshire or across the whole of the north of England, it takes a very small increase to raise a lot of money because you're doing it on a much bigger template. Um, I think the public's more likely to accept that than a massive hike in their council tax bills. Uh, but also, as I say, it enables you to act at scale on transport in particular um, and solve some of the problems that we've got. So I think as devolution moves forward, and I am in favour of devolution and building on what we already have, the question is, can we build this more at scale? Be it whether it's the northeast, the northwestern Yorkshire, or it's all three working together uh, to give us the kind of powers and to be honest, the political influence over government that very often is is missing. Um, I think government would find a sort of Northern Assembly or a Yorkshire Assembly very hard to ignore, whereas at the moment, many of the deals are relatively small and we end up trying to compete with each other for whatever the government will give us when we should be acting as well. Well, from my time at the Yorkshire Post, I remember the uh, long efforts to try and get the one Yorkshire devolution deal over the line and unfortunately the government uh, at the time didn't they, they they considered it to be too too big didn't they they thought that it would be uh, Yorkshire was too big an area to have its own devolution deal whether that's something that will be revisited at some point I guess I guess we'll see so is, is it your 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 view that so the way it might work is that you'd have a small levy applied to all Yorkshire taxpayers or all taxpayers in the north and that would raise a lot more than just a, a council, a levy of some kind, in, purely in Greater Manchester or in the northeast, and you could use that for a much bigger, sort of more all-encompassing project. Is that kind of the thing? Yes, um, I mean the current system basically means the mayors are competing with local authorities on council tax bills, which isn't a great place um, to be in. South Yorkshire and West Yorkshire have yet to to apply that because of the consequences. I think Greater Manchester have done it once. Um, so you can see how difficult it is without scale to raise the levels of funding that are going to make a real difference without really, you know, um, sticking up council tax bills to levels the public are not going to like, especially in times of financial hardship. Um, we're, we're sort of caught, aren't we? So having opportunities to do things at, at scale, I think, would make a huge difference. Um, that is not only a power political voice, it's going to make a huge difference to UK PLC and the, and the economy and what we can invest in um, and do some of those big things the North desperately needs. Absolutely. Well, there are plenty of those, that's for sure. Um, so, Stephen Houghton, thank you so much for speaking to us today. Thanks very much, Rob. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye.